Well, it is good to be able to have the opportunity once again to stand behind the pulpit, to preach the Word, to spend the time in it, in the study that I had this week. And uh, I'm excited for this morning. If, you, uh, if you're new here, or, or not new here, and you just don't know who I am, uh, my name is Ricky Ragone, and I'm the music and arts and youth pastor here at the church. And uh, with that said, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1 this morning. Uh, looking at verses 10 to 16. So if you want to turn there, get ready. Um, that's where we're going to be. It's nice to say that we're only looking at seven verses this morning. Last time it was like, we're going to look at two chapters. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Seven verses, two chapters. You guys know you're sitting here for a cool 45 minutes. <laughs> Let's just buckle up and get ready. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Our text this morning is going to pick up right from where we left off last week. Following Paul's salutation to Titus, Paul jumped right into his game plan for Titus. He wants Titus to get things in order within the church on Crete, where he is at. And the first thing he charges Titus to do is appointing pastor elders uh, to these churches in all the regions and in the towns. Because if the church is going to have order... It needs to have leadership, a plurality of elders taking leadership over the regions for the mission of the gospel. Not lone lone shark pastors just going on their own, doing their own thing, a plurality, multiple qualified men taking care of the oversight of the flocks. And what we saw last week was the qualifications for these men started in the home, right? They were to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, That is, children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And Paul gives him the qualification of of character, again, above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then lastly, Paul gives the qualification that he must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Pastor elders must know and hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ as given by the authority of the apostles at that time. Right? That that, that office of apostle, we've gone over this, is no longer in existence. We stand on the scriptures. But that is where the truth of the gospel is. And that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's atoning work alone. And these pastor elders are there to be well equipped to teach others that sound doctrine and to rebuke those preaching a contradictory gospel. Which is what we will see exactly in our text this morning in verses 10 to 16. That's what was happening on Crete. Uh, so hopefully you made it there. Let's look together at Titus 1, 10 to 16. Paul continuing saying, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So Paul wants Titus and he wants the other pastor elders throughout Crete to be able to identify and deal with false teachers who are preaching a contrary gospel. And to properly do that, they must, um, here we go, silence false teaching, right? Rebuke false teachers, and discern false belief. And the first thing we're going to look at is the silencing of false teachers. Now, Paul begins this paragraph with the word for, which directs us back to what he just finished up saying, right? That elders need to be grounded in sound doctrine. They need to know it. Why? Well, because there are problematic people who need to be dealt with swiftly. And they are demonstrating these characteristics that are contrary to qualified pastor elders. They are insubordinate. These men are are unruly. They are disobedient. Their their desire is to do their own thing on their own terms. These men have no respect for authority, right? That's what being insubordinate is. And if we look back at the qualifications of a pastor elder, it says they're not to be arrogant. Well, if you're insubordinate, you're definitely arrogant. So these men are in the church. They're insubordinate. They're empty talkers. What these men say, it has no substance. It's not rooted in the scripture. It's not founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They they speak these empty, pithy words. It, It probably sounds good while at the same time meaning nothing. All flash, no substance. They're offering a gospel that has no hope and no salvation. They're empty talkers. They are deceivers. Right? They're not honest. They're not upright. They're not holy. They're they're these con artists seeking to manipulate the people of Crete. The goal is to say what they want in any way, way they can to tickle the ears of those listening in order to get people to follow them. The Greek word that was used is is like seducing someone into something, luring them through dishonest means. Think like going back to Genesis, the serpent in the garden being crafty and shrewd. How he manipulated God's words in a way to entice Adam and Eve and preyed on their flesh, deceiving them into doubting God and tricking them into sin and disobedience. These men were distorting the gospel and seducing the people, drawing them in to believe a false gospel. They're deceivers. They are liars. That's how Paul begins. Insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. The question being, okay, well, who? Well, he tells us, especially those of the circumcision party. He begins describing the nature, and then he just zooms in 
These are the guys, right? And just in case you're new to this terminology, like it might be weird, like we know the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Circumcision Party? Um, weird. Uh, this was the Circumcision Party is, is a group known as the, the Judaizers. This was this, this group of, of Jewish Christians who emphasized not salvation in Christ alone, but in Christ plus the law. Right? So you not only had to follow Christ, but you had to keep the law in order to truly be saved. And keeping with the law came naturally circumcision, which was the outward sign of the Jewish people's covenant with God. So, so the gospel they preached was a Jesus plus works gospel, which is not a gospel at all. They're, they're, it's the opposite of good news. It's bad news. It's damning news. If, if salvation is ever dependent on something that we have to do, we're, we're hopeless. So, so that's who he's talking about. That who, that's who these insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers are. They, they are these Judaizers who are preaching Christ plus works. And if you remember back to Galatians, this is the same group of people who were causing issue in the Galatian church. And we know from Paul's letter to the Galatians that he has a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to the message of the gospel. Remind you of Galatians 1.9. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is strong language because souls are in the balance. Those preaching a false gospel are deceiving people into believing a lie. The Judaizers were, were the foremost exhibitors of insubordination, empty talk, and deception. And it was leading people to, to hell, to damnation, because it's a false gospel. So what's the solution? Paul tells Titus, they must be silenced. There's no other solution. The message must be stopped. What Paul is actually saying, he's saying muzzled. It's that people, when they hear this and they saw the, the word used, it's like a gag being put in their mouth. Like, just get them to stop. Don't let sound come out of their mouth. There's no middle ground. There's no, let's agree to disagree. Like, you can go over there and do that over there, but we're going to be over here, but it's fine. Like, he's like, no, silence them. They, they should not have a voice in the church at all because what they're preaching is antithetical to what Christ wants his church to believe and know. They cannot be given a voice because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So it's not just like a person here or there. It's like, I heard so-and-so saying this. Like, I'm a little upset by it. Like, whole families are being upset Whole households. Now the word that Paul uses here that can be translated as families is the word oikos, which is a a house or a dwelling. So when Paul says families or the household is being upset, it could be translated really one or two ways. Most of us probably have an ESV, maybe you have an NASB, and it says the families are being upset by this teaching. If you have an NIV or maybe a CSB, Christian Standard Bible, it translates just as the word households. 
And the difference in this translation is, is whether Paul's talking about like literal like family units being upset by it, or because the church gathered in people's homes, is he talking about households of faith? Are, 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 are they upsetting entire gatherings of believers within these households with their teaching? I believe since Paul is concerned with having pastor elders throughout the region, he's talking about the false teaching that's happening, that I, I lean towards him referring to households as households of gathered believers at the time. But really, regardless of whether it's families or households, those families are a part of the church. And if they are being upset and swayed by false teaching, either way, it's wrong and needs to be dealt with. And it's unacceptable on any level. So they're upsetting all these people with what they're doing. And they're not doing it out of innocent misunderstanding like, oh, that's the gospel. Sorry, Paul. My bad. I got you. No, no. They're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They know what they're teaching. They know they're not to teach it, but they do it. Why? For the bottom dollar. For shameful gain. For monetary gain. Paul doesn't get into the specifics of what lies they're spewing, but whatever it was, they're doing it to promote themselves and to presumably get people's money. They were greedy. And in their greed, they're not only lining their pockets, but they're hindering the gospel work that had been established by the apostolic authority of Paul. They're they're intentionally leading people astray from truth for their own gain. What's the best way for Satan to try and destroy the church? From the inside out. Cause division, cause strife. Watch it split. And that's what, what Paul is seeing as these people are being upset by this false gospel. And he's adamant. These voices need to be silenced. Appoint pastor elders that they're strong in the word, strong in the gospel, so they can lead their people well against these false teachers. Galatians 5.9, Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. False teaching must be silenced and dealt with swiftly lest it corrupt the whole body. That's why Paul is so adamant about this. We've called false teachers out on multiple occasions from up here. Why? Because, because we're meanies? No! No, because there's no wiggle room with the gospel. So when we see men like Joel Olstein, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland preaching false gospels for selfish gain, we don't want people to be led astray. They preach a gospel that teaches people to treasure prosperity, but not a gospel that teaches people to treasure Christ. And their gospel, Christ is merely a pathway to the true goal, right? A, a better life now, a richer life now, healthy, wealth, Right? Where the the scriptures show us Christ is the prize. Christ is the treasure. So don't be deceived by any message that that is the gospel, anything other than the beauty and glory of Christ and all that he has done. His atoning death on the cross is saving resurrection from the grave, right? It's not Christ plus works, it's Christ. It's not faith in faith, and the more faith you have just having faith, 
is good. No, it's faith in Jesus. It's not trust Jesus so you can get this or that. It's trust Jesus so you get Jesus. So you get relationship with the God of the universe written in the Lamb's book of life. And all their voices preaching anything else need to be silenced. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what books am I reading? What podcasts am I listening to? What voices are we allowing to speak? Because, well, they're really positive. Like, I find them really encouraging, really positive. They're, they're definitely, they're really captivating speakers, and I can just listen to them so easily. That doesn't matter. If they're not grounded in the truth of the gospel and the authority of the scripture, they need to go. They need to be silenced. If you ever have questions about, like, oh, I'm reading this book, I think it's good. Do you think it's good? Like, you can ask any of the pastor elders. It won't take us long to look through it and go, oh, this seems sketchy. Maybe don't read that. Or an explanation why. It's not like it's just like book bans. Don't read any of these. Like, we're open to conversation to walk you through it, to teach you why is this wrong? How does this not align with the scriptures? We know pretty quickly if something's worth your time. Right? How does the phrase go? You are what you eat. Well, how much more so with theology? You are what you take in. And it's really important. And it was important to Paul. It needs to be important to us. They need to be silenced. And, and Paul doesn't just stop at silencing them. He doesn't just say, shut them up and put them away. No, there's further action. False teachers must be rebuked, he says. Moving down to verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul decides to pull from a pretty interesting source here, right? A Cretan prophet. Most likely a man by the name of Epimenides. And what he has to say about the Cretans, one of his own, is not kind or flattering. Like, it's not some Cretans are, are evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and liars, right? No, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Wow, that's harsh. But who would know better than one of their own, right? And what does Paul say? Like, well, let's look at this. Let's, let's step back. No, he says, the testimony is true. Well, Paul, like, is this the lens by which Paul views the Cretan people? Are they all liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons? I tell you, a lot of the world did at the time. Like, Cretans were not viewed in high regard. The Greeks had a word, kretizo, which meant to lie or cheat, based on the Cretans. Like, wow. Basically, when the world pictured Cretans, they were picturing someone like this. That's Newman from Seinfeld. Right? If, there's, if, there, if you're thinking of a Cretan, well, it's Newman. Right? Picturing someone like that. The world lumped all the Cretans into one category. So is that what Paul is doing here? Does, is Paul just, is he taking his attention like, hold on, I'll get back to false teachers, but Cretans are the worst. And I just want you to know that, Titus. They're terrible. 
Now, I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think he's applying this generalization about Cretans from the Cretan prophet to the false teachers. The, the specific Cretans who are the empty talkers and deceivers are those who are also liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I th- he, he's using this generalization about an entire culture and pointing it to these men. And they, these false teachers, they, they lived up to the reputation of the Cretan people. And he affirms it. Testimony is true. And then he says, rebuke them sharply. I, I, I don't think he would tell Titus to just like, go rebuke the island. I mean, I guess if it was warranted, sure. Um, sin needs rebuke. But I don't think that's what he's telling him here. The context would show us that he's, he's saying to rebuke these false teachers sharply. Right? These, these liars these empty talkers, these deceivers. So step one was to silence them. Step two is to rebuke them. They need to be told what they're doing is wrong. Paul's no stranger to rebuking. He rebuked Peter himself when he was out of step with the gospel. Rebuke is necessary when someone is speaking and living in error. It's not enough to only silence. They need to be shown where they are wrong. And this is not like a gentle like, hey, listen, um, what you're saying, not correct. Um, And uh, I would just, if you could, if you could stop. (laughs) Right, like that's that's not a rebuke. He's saying do it sharply. Cut to the chase, tell them what they're doing is wrong, and point them to the truth. Silence them and rebuke them. Tell them what they're doing is unacceptably, unacceptable and blatantly sinful. This is not the occasion for the gentle approach. There's, there's times for that, but when someone is preaching a different gospel and leading people astray in active rebellion to God and what he has taught, they need to be dealt with sternly. But the goal of the sharp rebuke, it's not just to tell someone off, to like get some like good zingers in there and be like, God, I'm good. Yeah, that'll stop them. No, the goal of the rebuke is to show them where they're in error so that they might repent and believe the true gospel. Right? Isn't that what Paul is saying here? Rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in faith. That's the goal. So, not that they just stop the false gospel, but that they would believe the true gospel. That's the point of a rebuke is to lead to repentance and belief. That's why we do it. It's not a matter of just opinion. It's a matter of eternal life or damnation. These false teachers are, are leading others straight to hell with them. So they need to be rebuked and confronted with the truth of the gospel so that the Spirit of God can be at work in their hearts. To take the veil away so that they can see the beauty and glory of Christ. That's the goal. That they would turn and devote themselves to the teaching of the gospel and the scriptures and stop, as Paul mentions here, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away truth. Right? So rebuke so that they would turn from what they were doing to sound doctrine, to Christ. 
So what exactly are Jewish myths? Jewish myths, this extends beyond just adding the law to the gospel. uh, Because the law of God is scripture. It's true. The law is good. Their application was wrong. and, And they turned it into something God never intended it. But the law of God in and of itself is no myth that it is good and sound and scriptural. These Jewish myths, they were passed down stories. They weren't based in God's revelation. They were stories that were being added to God's word as passed down from person to person. And we see Paul address the same thing in his letters to Timothy as well. Myths and genealogies is telling them to stop. As they promoted their self-righteousness and is a complete contrast to the work of Christ. Paul wants them to stop with the Jewish myths. Devote yourself to sound doctrine. Devote yourself to the gospel which the apostles have been entrusted with by God's authority, not man's authority. Paul wants them to stop devoting themselves to the commands of people who turn away truth. That seems like a good principle. Because on top of these extra-biblical myths, they were also turning to people providing their own commands, doing their own thing. The, the Pharisees, they, they were known for doing this. Right? They had rules on top of God's law. As though what God has spoken was, was not sufficient. So we needed to add more. That sounds ridiculous, considering that even after the first commandment, we're done. That same tradition, it it, it continued from the Pharisees and right into Christianity. It didn't take long. That's why Paul's saying they turn from the truth. They turn from the true gospel to their own works-based gospel. Don't devote yourself to their teaching and their commands. Listen, what God has provided in his revelation is enough. It is sufficient. It's complete we, we don't need to add more to it. Right? The gospel is the good news of what has been done. There's no more to add. We have the 66 books of the inspired, infallible word of God, and we don't need to add more in order to, to know God, to hear from God. He speaks by his spirit through his word. We just sang that together. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We, We have what God has intended for us to have, and we need to be a people who devote ourselves to that, to the Word. It was... It was the great Charles Spurgeon who said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Right? If you look at any of our offices here, we have bookshelves, a lot of books, but we stand on the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. And every book, speaker, podcast, song, YouTube channel, whatever it is, needs to be filtered through the Word of God. That's what we preach. All those things can help us better understand it and comprehend it. But if any tries to contradict or add to it, it is wrong. We need to devote ourselves to the truth of the Scriptures. 
for that is the only way to be sound in faith. That's what Paul's goal is. Rebuke them with the authority of the truth that God himself revealed, that they might turn from these other insufficient sources and look to the all-sufficient word of God. Their message needed to be silenced. Their false teaching needs to be rebuked. And their false belief needs to be discerned. Verse 15. Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their, but both their minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul is drawing a conclusion about these false teachers as he concludes his thoughts on the situation. And he does so with this little proverbial statement, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and believing, nothing is pure. And what Paul is actually doing is he's echoing the teaching of Jesus himself in the gospel according to Mark in chapter 7. Uh, if, I, I would say turn there if you can. Because it is a, a large section. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to summarize it. Because it's, it's important. It's the foundation of, of what Paul is saying. So Mark chapter 7, right, right at the beginning, nice and easy. And in this passage, Jesus, at, at great length, deals with the traditions and commands that the Pharisees operated by. So to summarize a little bit, Jesus' disciples were eating. And they were eating with, with their hands not washed properly in the ceremonial way. And, and when the scribes saw it, they relayed that to the Pharisees and was like, Jesus' disciples are washing with unclean hands. So then obviously the Pharisees, they had, to go, they had to go deal with it and make sure they called them out on such abhorrent actions. And the question they ask of Jesus, if we look down, verse uh, 5, he says, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. So we can already start and see the error in that question. And how did Jesus answer? He says, And he said to them, Well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So, so Jesus is, is telling them they're rejecting God by substituting their own rules and traditions. They're, they're doing the right things to appear to be holy, to appear to be pure and righteous. But their hearts, the most important thing, are far from God. And from this conversation, uh, we see Jesus actually teaches on uh, what is clean versus unclean, what is pure versus what is defiled. Skipping down to verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. 
But the things that come out of a person are what? Defile him. Defilement is a heart issue. It's a gospel issue. And Jesus is demonstrating to these Pharisees that there's no tradition of man that can make someone truly clean. It's not what touches us on the outside that determines whether we're clean or unclean. It's a matter of the heart. And those without Christ who have not believed by grace through faith in Christ are what Paul, in our passage, would refer to as defiled and unbelieving. And if you're defiled and unbelieving, then nothing is pure in the ceremonial sense. You you can follow all the rules you want. You can do all the self-righteous things you want to do. You can give this appearance of purity. But the reality is, if you have not trusted and are leaning on Christ's sacrifice and all that he has done, you are defiled. There's nothing pure because your heart is still stained with sin. It doesn't matter how many rosaries you say. It doesn't matter how much meat you give up on Fridays. It doesn't matter how many people you help. It doesn't matter if you show up here every single Sunday. If you're trusting in the list of your good deeds to make you righteous and holy and pure, you're still going to end up at square one. Defiled, unbelieving. Because though you honor God with your lips, your heart is still far from him. Because you haven't trusted in Jesus himself. Going kind of backwards in verse 15, but to the pure, the one who has been made pure through Jesus Christ, who has trusted in Christ alone for salvation, all things are pure. Now that's not to say you can do whatever you want, sin like the devil, it doesn't matter because, hey, I got Jesus, I'm washed white as snow, it's all good. Like, we can't go into store shop list and be like, it's all good. I got Jesus. God bless. <laughs> right? Like, that doesn't work either. But in the same passage in Mark 7, it says Jesus declares uh, the food, that, that no food doesn't defile. Um, and the point of that is, again, what, what goes in is not what defiles us. So, you, you, you don't have this license to sin, but if you believe in Christ and he's your savior, you can strap on a bib and have some lobster. And the opposite side of that is if you haven't trusted Christ, you can abstain from lobster all you want, but it doesn't matter because that doesn't purify you. I hope that makes sense. It's those in Christ, they've already been made clean. Jesus is the ultimate cleanser, the ultimate redeemer. And there's, there's no one that, touches, that Jesus touches with a saving grace that can therefore be made unclean. It's not the things we do that cleanse us. It's all that Jesus has done. If someone has been saved by grace, then the joy and the desire to want to sin should decrease going back to just because you're a believer doesn't mean you can just sin all you want, right? The, the joy and the desire to want to sin should decrease. Sin should, should anger us. Sin should sadden us. Sin should bring us before God in brokenness. So, so saying to the pure, all things are pure, is not to say sin doesn't happen. We, we're all, we're not going to do, we're not going to raise our hand if we all know what's 
Sin still happens because that's unanimous. But we should not be content with it. As Pastor Matt Chandler says, often it's okay to not be okay, but we can't stay there. We can't stay there. And the more we grow in godliness, the more we're aware of God's holiness, the more we see the sinful tendencies in our lives. And we need to repent. And by God's grace, His Spirit is at work in us and we grow more and more like Christ. Defilement and purity, it's a, it's a heart issue, it's a gospel issue. And based on what Jesus has said and based on what Paul already knows to be true, he, he discerns the false belief of those infiltrating the church of Crete. And this is his assessment. He says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul's looking, he's observing. He says they claim to know God, but how they're living says otherwise. What they're teaching says otherwise. Now, none of us are called to sit on thrones of judgment and look down at other people and go, "Mm, no, not you. Like, we need to examine our own hearts first and foremost, always. But we are told that believers will have fruit, visible. Like, it shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, you're a believer? I had no idea. That's bad. If people are like shocked, like, oh, you believe in Jesus? Crazy. I would have never assumed that from your life. Not good. No fruit. That's not good. Right? We, so we are told to examine people's fruit. Not to judge their souls. That is God's job. But what Paul has done, he's, he's seen their character, he's heard their messages, and concludes that what they are doing denies. Like, the, there's no way they believe in the truth of the gospel and in who God is because of what is happening. And he says they're detestable. Detestable. Another word would be abominable. Repulsive. This is strong language. And Paul is using such language because he wants Titus to see the urgency in silencing these men. They're not just misinformed. They're not just in need of a quick tweaking. They're living in open rebellion to the truth of the living God. They are detestable, he says. It, it seems like he's being really harsh on these guys, but if, if, when Paul looks back on his life before Christ, he would call himself the same thing. That's what we are without Christ. Self-righteousness in the name of Jesus and living in a way that openly dishonors him and belittles the gospel is detestable. So he says they're detestable. He says they're disobedient. I think we're all probably well-versed in disobedience. You've either seen a child, have a child, or were a child. Therefore, everybody's very good and knows what disobedience is. Like, right? It goes hand-in-hand with insubordination. Right, these guys, they are disobedient to the authority of God himself and are disobedient to the apostles who have been given the authority by God to teach the word and proclaim the truth. 
They're in a state of disobedience. That is the nature of an unbelieving person. They're in disobedience that what God has called them to, to trust Him, to put their faith in Him alone. Disobedience to trust that His ways are the best ways. Disobedience to trust that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's just the state of unbelief. These men were detestable, disobedient, and then he says unfit for any good work. These men were unfit to do what pleases the Lord. Good works that bring honor and glory to Him. Not because of the work itself, right? But because of the work that's occurring within us through our belief in Christ, through the work of the Spirit in the Gospel. Without Christ, our good deeds are as filthy rags, the Bible says. So these men are unfit for any good work because they have not been transformed by the gospel. They are unfit for good works because they have trusted in the ult- they have not trusted in the ultimate good work of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Good works are a result of salvation, not a prerequisite for it. Good works don't save us. Good works don't make God all of a sudden look at us and go, "Oh, yeah, okay, you're in." No, it's trust in Christ. Without him, we are unfit for any good work. Actually, I think Paul summarizes the condition of man without Christ and the result of salvation wonderfully in Ephesians chapter 2. Again, you could turn there if you want. I don't have the verses on the screen. But chapter 2, again, starting at verse 1, keeping it very simple for the page turns and the locating. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Paul's addressing the Ephesian church. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the condition of man without Christ. Dead, disobedient, carrying out the desires of the flesh, children of wrath, without a doubt, unfit for any good work, right? But thankfully, the passage doesn't just end there. We get one of the greatest conjunctive statements in the scriptures, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Important we notice this, right? We're not saved by any kind of good works. None. That's all according to God's mercy and love and our faith in Christ alone. But then what comes after we've trusted in Christ? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't walk in them when we are dead in our trespasses and sin and by nature are children of wrath. But it's after he has made us alive with Christ 
we walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. Do we see the full picture? See, Paul's issue with the Judaizers was that they, they missed the beauty of, but God. And they're flipping the script and they're trying to say, but I, but I did this. See, our sinful nature is self-absorbed. In our, our sin, we try to be our own saviors. But, but without Christ, we stand condemned. As unholy sinners, we're trying to reason with a holy God and say, but I did this, but I, but I did that. I put rules on top of your rules. Isn't that good? But unless Christ is our Savior and our only hope, God's response will be, I never knew you. You proclaim to know me with your mouth, but your actions say otherwise. You have not been made pure by Jesus. So Paul, Paul doesn't want to just berate them for the sake of, of making them look bad. Right? He doesn't want to just run their name through the mud but the, but the heart of all this goes back to verse 13 where he says, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in faith. The goal of pointing out their unbelief should be that they would repent and believe. Right now, these men are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They're insubordinate, they're deceivers. They must be silenced to protect the flock, but rebuke them that they might believe. The, the, the beauty of the gospel is that no one is so sinful, right, so detestable, so disobedient that they can't be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. That not even these men of the circumcision party who you can cl- clearly see Paul's not a fan, even they are not too far from God being able to change their hearts and draw him to themse- himself. And, and no one sitting here this morning is too far gone for God to save you and give you life. Uh, maybe your story is similar to, to what is going on with these men. You're trying to trust in your own good works. You're trying to, to do your own good deeds. You're looking at God and you're saying, but I, but I did this. Anything we can do will never be good enough. That's why Christ willingly laid down his life on the cross. That's why Christ endured the agony of the cross by bearing the weight of sin on himself because none of us could be good enough. No amount of self-righteousness could save anyone. But Christ bore the wrath of God on himself so that we don't have to experience it if we repent of our sins, stop trying to go our own way and trust in Christ. Will you trust him this morning? Will you stop saying, but I, and see what God has done and surrender all to Christ? I tell you, there's no greater joy than knowing your sins are forgiven, your debt is paid, and you have an eternal home in the family of God. There's no greater burden lifted than knowing you don't have to do good works to impress God, but you get to do good works because of what God has done. Totally flipping the script, right? That's the true gospel. That's the the hope we have given by God himself and his word. And that's a better hope than anyone could just think up and put out there. We have God's word. So trust not in the doctrines of man, but trust in the finished work of Christ. Trust in the all-sufficient word of God. The band can go ahead and make their way up.
And when they, what we're all going to sing together is a song we've sung many times. All I have is Christ. But it's really important, no, no matter what song we sing, but I'm just emphasizing this now. Don't let the words and the lyrics just be the words and the lyrics. Just print on a screen that I'm, I'm, I'm reciting because this is the time to recite those words. Take this time to respond, to examine your heart, to, to, to repent of ways that you've tried to be our own gods and do things our own way. And as the song kind of leads us in it, to, to look to the hope of Jesus. Our way leads to the grave and has no hope. But Jesus bore God's wrath, suffered in our place, and gives us grace so that we can be redeemed. So I urge you again, trust Jesus this morning so that we, we can all join together with confidence and sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let's bow our heads together. Father, it is so easy for us to try and seize control. It's so easy for us to forget the truth of the gospel and try to add our own methods and, and ways of restoring relationship with you. Help us to all get out of the way. Help us to see the beauty and the glory of Christ and the gospel. Your, your love displayed in all that Christ has done. Entering a broken world living in it without sin, yet willingly going to the cross to bear the sin of the world. And then rising from the grave victorious over sin and death. May we trust in that truth this morning and no other gospel. May we know that deep within our souls, that it would just take hold of us. It would transform how we live. That we would show fruit. That we would show light in a dark world. And that we would declare and demonstrate your truth, your love, your gospel, your word to a broken and hurting world. Be at work in us, we pray. We thank you for this letter that you wrote to Titus thousands of years ago, but it still continues to challenge and point us to Jesus. Be at work, we pray. Help us to be able to say all we have is Christ, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.